This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. So it's lovely to still be here uh, and to come and talk to you today. Now, I don't know whether Vadriketu was poorly briefed or whether I was, uh, but I was not aware that you were expecting me to talk about the life of Dada Rinpoche. I was just asked, uh, I think Vimla Dara, I can't quite remember, I think asked me to just say, to talk about Dada Rinpoche. And what um, I thought I'd do is just talk fairly generally about my encounter with him. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to uh, explain his life story. Uh, there's, there's, there is a lot of material that you can get hold of to find out about that sort of thing. So yeah, I was, I was just asked to talk about my encounter with Dada Rinpoche. And if you think about it, that encounter took place 19 years ago. Uh, pretty much to the day I, I, I worked it out. It must be about 19 years ago today that I met him. And in those days, you were only allowed to spend 48 hours in Kalimpong. There were certain restrictions. Uh, so I met this man over the course of 48 hours, 19 years ago, and here I am <laughs> giving a talk about it. Um, and it says something about Dada Rinpoche, and it says something about his school that I can, that that meeting was so vivid, and uh, he made such an impression on me. Uh, and the meeting, I suppose, was, was so important for me that 19 years later it is still important and it is still vivid enough for me to, I hope, um, communicate something of uh, what that meeting was about for me. And when I met uh, Dado, he was a mythic figure. Hardly anybody in the FWBO had met him. Uh, Lokamitra and Surita had been a few more, I certainly wasn't the next after them, a handful of people had met Dada Rinpoche. But really he was, he was still very much a mythic figure from this mythic place, Kalimpong, that uh, Banti would talk about in his lectures or in his question and answer sessions. Uh, something kind of from, from a land far away and long ago. Uh, he came from Tibet, which had its own mystique, its own cachet. He was a tulku, an incarnate lama, something which, you know, for a start, I hardly understood, uh, except by virtue of having read uh, a very interesting account of the tulku tradition in Govinda's The Way of the White Clouds. He was the man who Banti, at a, in a seminar I'd uh, attended, had declared that if there was anybody he'd met who he could believe was a bodhisattva, it was Dada Rinpoche. And it was for that reason that Bandhi had taken his own bodhisattva ordination from Dada Rinpoche because he could actually believe that Dada Rinpoche was a bodhisattva. So, I mean, here were these factors piling up in my mind that I was about to meet somebody you know, who had this very important place in Bandhi's life, who came from the magical land of Tibet, who was an incarnate lama and a bodhisattva. I was a bit apprehensive about it. Um, not least because Lokamitra, when talking about his meeting with Dada Rinpoche, which had taken place a couple of years earlier, um, maybe even three or four years earlier, had, uh, had told a few of us that he'd felt quite nervous before meeting Rinpoche. He'd known that what you should do when you meet a Rinpoche is a full prostration. 
and he'd spent the whole time going there worrying whether or not he could make a full prostration, whether he had it in him to do a thing like that, but that when he'd met Dada Rinpoche, it had just happened. He'd suddenly found himself on the floor. And this made me panic even more, because <laughs> I was absolutely certain that I was not the kind of person who was going to do that, as indeed I proved not to be. Uh, <laughs> but there were these elements sort of piling up. I was excited about the idea of meeting Dada and Pache, but I was also you know, apprehensive, a little nervous of it. And I imagine, if I'm honest, I kind of hid behind the fact that, well, it was only two days. I was there for other reasons. I just spent two months traveling around uh, Maharashtra and up into Uttar Pradesh with Banti on his lecture tour that I wrote about in Jai Bim. So I, I was already in the middle of a pretty exciting time, and this was just two days. Uh, and I, I was going to hide behind the fact that I'd interview him and I'd do films, and uh, I needn't feel too worried and nervous about the effect that he might have on me. I mean, another thing that doesn't help when you go and meet Dada Rinpoche, or when you went to meet him, was the sheer business of getting there. You had to go to Calcutta to get permission to, you had to get permission in Calcutta to go to Darjeeling, and in Darjeeling you had to get permission to go to Kalimpong. Uh, the journey involved trains, buses, jeeps, rickshaws. And you would finally arrive um, in Kalimpong. And Kalimpong, um, this magical place I'd heard about from Bante's lectures, turned out to be a kind of sprawling, ramshackle place. Um, it was spread out over a couple of low hills and across the saddle in between, much bigger than I'd expected. And it was a place that had obviously known uh, a certain grandeur, even a certain glory. And it had, uh, as you've probably read, once been a, an important town on the trade route between Tibet and India. But those days were, were gone with, with the Chinese invasion. And Kalimpong was sort of stuck out in this uh, cul-de-sac um, and gradually crumbling away. But a lively, bustling place um, with a, what I thought was a very pleasant climate. Uh, the plains in India, even at that time of year, were, were hot. They were hot to me. Uh, Darjeeling at that time of the year could get pretty cold. And Kalimpong seemed to have this extremely pleasant Mediterranean sort of climate and uh, a very, very Tibetan feel. I mean, most of the people you saw on the streets were Tibetan, possibly Nepali. Um, you know, get, getting on with life, a busy, bizarre, busy, crowded streets. Uh, but everything crumbling, a lot of graffiti, a lot of uh, long live the Dalai Lama graffiti and so on. Um, and this old ramshackle town. And my job was to find the ITBCI school. I'd written to tell them I was coming, but I wasn't expecting to be met. I just assumed, I don't know quite why, that I would just find the place. I, I think I thought that Kalimpong was a tiny little town, um, a little hamlet, and it would be obvious. But one of the first things I noticed when I got off the jeep in Kalimpong was that there were school children everywhere because it was, must have been some time of day when kids were going to school or something or coming back. I think it was lunchtime when I arrived. Uh, and there were so many school uniforms. Kalimpong, like Darjeeling, seemed to be crammed full of schools. 
So I thought, oh dear, how am I going to do this? And it didn't really help to go up to people and say, excuse me, where's the ITBCI school? Because I'd had bad enough time the night um, straight after I got off the Jeep buying a barfi. I'd been into a, a chai stall and there was this counter full of these little square sweets called barfi. And I'd asked for some tea and I'd said barfi and he said, what? And I said, barfi. And he said, what? <laughs> I said, um, barfi? Bar- I, I was just trying, he was just... And everyone gathered round. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, you know, barfi, biffy, boffy, beffy. And in the end, someone said, oh, barfi. <laughs> I, I thought, <laughs> to, to this day, I don't know what I was doing wrong. <laughs> Maybe Tadja Darshan can help me afterwards. <laughs> but having had that kind of trouble getting a barfi, I thought, how am I going to find the ITBCI school? But strange to relate, it wasn't as hard as I expected because looking at all these kids everywhere on the streets, there were some kids wearing a uniform that was kind of quite nice to look at. They were navy blue. Uh, sort of skirts or trousers and uh, orangey yellow shirts Um, but the thing about those kids was that they just seemed incredibly bright and cheerful and I just had an instant intuition that they were the ones so I just walked up to a couple of these kids who were walking along the street and said Dado Rinpoche and they immediately started laughing and took hold of my hand, and off, off we went. Uh, you know, it was possible, in other words, to, it was literally possible to feel his influence you know, from a mile away just by the smile on the face of the children who he spent his time with. There was something quite exceptional, uh, just happy, free, alive and alert about those kids. You know, we're talking about five, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. So they took me to the school which again came as a little bit of a surprise. There was one very fine building, uh, I think a three-story structure with very clean white plaster finish um, and balconies and nicely painted windows. But the rest of the school, it was this higgledy-piggledy cluttered mass of little semi-derelict buildings on all different levels. The school was kind of precariously perched on the side of a well something between a a valley and a ravine very very steep sloping hillside with buildings perched on stilts and perched on top of each other Uh, very little space between them there was no playground the playground was the roof of one of the classrooms a corrugated iron roof where the kids sort of you know hung out and played it's very very densely packed little cluster of shabby-looking buildings with one rather nice modern structure in the middle of it. I don't know what I'd expected, maybe from the sort of title, the uh, ITBCI school, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Cultural Institute school. I'd expected something kind of more institutional and a little bit more objectively fine or refined but but it wasn't it was very much a part of Kalimpong just a you know a, a ragamuffin bundle of buildings but thronging 
with these delightful kids. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of the world's paedophobes. But um, <laughs> this place was special. And even now, looking at, looking at the film I took, looking at, looking at those kids, sort of wave upon wave of kids, you know, of, of children coming up and waving at the camera or saluting to it, or doing their karate gestures to it. I just find myself laughing and smiling. I mean, there was something so delightful about the atmosphere. But the other thing about the atmosphere when I arrived was that there were no grown-ups in sight. Uh, I couldn't find Dada Rinpoche. Uh, I couldn't find Jampal, his, uh, his assistant. You know, I couldn't find any of the adults. Eventually, I did come across an old monk, a very old monk in Theravada robes, who I, I wasn't expecting. And for a moment, I thought, could that be Dada Rinpoche? Um, but you know, it wasn't. He didn't look anything like the guy I'd seen in the photographs, and he didn't speak any English. Uh, you know, I, I, I caught sight of, of a teacher or two in, through, through windows, uh, but they didn't speak English. So in the end, you know, being very aware of the time, I mean, it was already midday on my first of two days in Kalimpong, uh, I just decided to go into one of the classrooms and by sign language say, you know, here I am, do you mind if I start filming your class while you do it? Which, which I proceeded to do. And I'd been at, at it for, uh, you know, maybe only a minute, filming these kids, um, you know, starting their, their lessons, when the door opened uh, and in, in walked Rinpoche. Um, yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary sight to see Dada Rinpoche. Um, so different to anything I'd expected. Uh, as I said, a, you know, a lama, a geshe, a tulku, a bodhisattva, Tibetan. Um, I've no idea what it was I was expecting, but just the sight of this you know, slight, frail, slightly stooped old man. Well, not that old, he was 65, but... He looked, he looked older and, and looked frailer. You could tell from the way he walked and carried himself that he had probably been quite wiry and quite physically useful at, at, at an earlier stage in his life. But he was sort of on or even he was past the turn. He, he just carried a sort of atmosphere of, of, of frailness, of physical frailness around himself. But at the same time, that was, that was filled with the most delightful atmosphere of warm concern and lightness. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, the word that, that springs to my mind, you know, always, is, is something maternal. You know, there, there was a sort of maternal quality of, of love and concern just that, 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 that saturated his face all the time. You know, so whenever you were with him, um, that was never far away. Sometimes it was very, very much to the fore when he was addressing the children, or often when he was addressing me, and almost from the start, he treated me like a child, though he acted like one himself. We, we, we sort of immediately started to relate to each other like playmates. Uh, we didn't, you know, he had no English, and Jampal was still not there. And so when he walked into the room, and after we had... We did a lot of, ah, you know. I was very aware that I was doing, ah, I'm not, you know. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, I, if I was thinking at all of, of, that, of that problem. But um, we just sort of looked at each other with our arms out going, ah, ah. <laughs> and somehow out of this you know, came the, you know, the realisation that we didn't have a translator, that to go much beyond, ah, you know, could be problematic. Um, but what happened was, you know, I had this bag full of miniaturised gadgets. I had a, a little cine camera. I had a little tape recorder. I had a, I don't know, little, all sorts of little things all fitted into this bag. And the next thing I knew, we were at this table and I was showing them to him. And he was going, ah, ah. <laughs> and, you know, playing with things and holding them. And um, I don't know, it was just like... It was like being back at kindergarten. It's just the two of us at this table having fun with these little toys and making jokes about the fact that I was a communist spy. And how we did this, I don't know, but I promise we did. Um, and after a while, I, I, I started filming him. But there was something about um, Dado that w w when you were with him, you just, you just felt... Um, that you'd, you'd kind of come home, that you were in the presence of someone who was, on the one hand, extremely warm and loving and welcoming, and at the same time substantially enough to protect you in, in a certain way. So it was just this sense of, of, of being at home, of being completely secure, being, being in his presence, which was really quite wonderful and quite magical. I mean, I saw him during those uh, hours in, in, in a range of different contexts, um, 